Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our sixth series, we've collaborated with Yorkshire Sculpture Park for wide-ranging conversations with six of Britain's most exciting sculptors. In a chapel beneath a grey slate mountain in North Wales, David Nash keeps a collection of sculptures that span the years and geography of his career. Hewn wooden structures that resemble elephant trunks, tongues, the palm of a hand. It is breathtaking. On the afternoon we met, he led me from the chapel to his drawing studio to his workshop to discuss the craft and wonder of his work, the role of colour, the pleasures of a chainsaw, and why he encourages people to touch his sculptures. Okay, so I've got my hand on an extraordinary wooden piece. It's got a, almost, well, I guess it's a branch, but it looks almost like an elephant trunk, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. What's its name, please? I call Ubus, after Jarry's play, Roi Ubu. And uh, I made it in France, and a project, because through the 80s and 90s, most of my work was made overseas on invitation by a, a museum or a, a commercial gallery. It was mostly museums. And what I was doing then is going to the museum and finding fallen wood nearby and making the sculpture. All the exhibition was made on, on, on site. And then so, um, I had two French students helping me, and one of them said, that looks like Père Ubu. Uh, it's a famous play. And there is a Mrs. Ubu. Madame Ubu. So I and I had a an oak which had been hit by lightning, so it was dangerous. So that's where the oak came from. And nearby there was an ash. In this village had a um, a small deer park as as a sort of a visitors attraction, and the deer had eaten the bark all all the way around the ash at the base, so it was dying. So I had an oak and an, an ash to make the work which went into Turner's Abbey, which was nearby, which, which was the venue for this exhibition. And, the, and it was an amazing uh, 13th century vaulted building, and it had high up to the big arched ceiling, and I needed forms to reach up. So it was usually the wood that I found and the space which informed me what to make. So new ideas would appear for each project. But in the middle 90s, I was getting quite exhausting doing these things. And I, I made myself a, a better studio here. So I now make all the work nearby. So tell us where here is. This is Kapelhru. It was built in the 1860s. It was a very, very popular Calvinist Methodist chapel. But in the uh, early 60s, the congregation had shrunk. They used to get about 600 people in this space. And uh, they discovered dry rot. So they had a smaller chapel that they could move to, and they put this onto the market. And it was originally priced in 1968 at £50. Pounds. So I was already living here. I had a living in, in a cottage up the other end of town, and I got wind of this and came and had a look and it was going to it was obviously going to be perfect and also I was really looking for no rent no mortgage if possible and so this was it so I, I was in competition with a scrap merchant so uh, I got it for 200 pounds 
I mean, still a, still a bargain. Yeah. It and is an absolutely stunning. At the back, wow. Which is our house. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Um, we can't escape the fact that there is a, a big grey slaty tower yes. <laughs> immediately looming yeah. over everything yeah. in this town. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that and, and its history? Yeah, it's a slate mining town. Uh, there's a village about four miles away called Llanvestinog, which is really the big dwelling area. And there were four farms up at this end of the valley. And the rainfall here is a microclimate of over 100 inches a year. That's 10 feet of rain. So those people wouldn't come here by sort of choice, but uh, because they discovered slate here and the, and the slate industry really took off, Leinefestinjok grew incredibly quickly through the early, well, late 18th century and early 19th century till they were the the population was around 20,000 it's down to three now and um, so property was very very cheap so you filled it with some of the most beautiful creations I can't we walked in and neither of us could properly speak because (laughs) because it's so overwhelming there is sort of every kind of wood you could imagine every different shade of wood and you've shape them into yes into quite quite they might be big but they're quite simple low down and high up low down and high up you've, re- you've really filled every inch of the space here david do you want to walk us around some of them yeah well i worked in here to start yeah. with just with hand tools and then when i graduated after 10 uh, years i realized how useful a chainsaw was I couldn't use it inside because of the fumes. Anyway, eventually I got workshops just across the valley here, so it's, it's very nearby. So it's been a great advantage for me to have this studio space, workshop space, and what is now like a gallery. It's so yeah, so it's, it's populated, we call this the new congregation. And we've kept work, as Claire, Claire and I have decided which pieces we won't sell or, or we won't put out for sale and some of them are pieces which just haven't sold but we really like them so we've decided okay you are a Kapelhru collection piece I can't believe any of these wouldn't sell because they are I mean I genuinely I'm genuinely lost for words <laughs> how beautiful these things are do you want to uh, introduce us to some of the congregation um well so this cracking box yes this is the wrong way to make a box What's the right way to make a box? Well, you make it one that, that you can open it, mm-hmm. you know, and it doesn't crack. So this is made of end grain rings of oak, which I've squared up, fresh, so it's full of water when I make them. So when I make them and I peg them together, they are square. But then as the water comes out, they inevitably shrink and crack and bend and resist and break away from the imposition which I've put on them, which is something which I really enjoy about wood, using it fresh, is that it has behaviour. Yeah, early on I was just making coloured work, painting pieces of plywood and putting them into space in shapes. But I felt that I was completely dominating the material and I wasn't really learning anything from it. I wasn't in dialogue with it. I was just imposing it, imposing my will. So then I began to get very dissatisfied with the colour just being on the surface. I tried staining it and then eventually I gave up the um, colour and just investigated wood. And I found my way to fresh wood, which 
I was told at art school you must use only seasoned wood because it'll crack and bend and warp. Though, yes, it does do that. And I, so instead of finding it a problem, I welcomed it. Apparently, Barbara Hepworth moved to bronze because her wood pieces cracked. Of course, she was making a very pure form, and the crack was not going to help the form. Whereas my, I'd like to think my work is enhanced by what it does after I've stopped working on it. Well, even the fact that you've allowed us to touch, touch the wood, yeah. and you said that it sort of acquires this sort of different quality, this sort of gleam. Well, yeah, well, yes, it's people's, it's lanolin. You know, when people say it's like a banister, people's hands running, running down it. They're nice. They get up a nice gloss. Lovely. Yeah. Um, could I ask about the ones? Yeah, these are. You? There was a big pulpit here, with a curved, two curving staircases coming up to the pulpit, so the the preacher minister could overlook his audience and then behind him there was an organ so there were organ pipes up here mm. apparently I, 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 I never saw that but by coincidence the shapes that I've made here sort of do replicate to a certain degree this sort of upward vertical I love these, these are this is redwood from Borden, Calif- California so you worked over there a, a fair yes bit, I worked with a gallery over there and the Californians tend to like the work which pieces which are made with Californian wood and also, it's, it's red and it's big. It's, it's hard to get. But I've been able there. I've worked with a, a woodyard who is ethically sourcing his wood. So it's a bit like roadkill. So that's, so that's what I've been working with there. And I had a show at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park in 2010 in preparation for that. They've got big galleries, so I needed big wood. So I very rarely import wood. I, I try to avoid it. It's part of the idea of going to where the wood is and making the works there to be shown there. Then after the shows, what doesn't stay there comes here. So that's why in, in this room there are pieces from Poland, Japan, Australia, many European countries, and from the United States. It does, I suppose, that increases the palette and the... Yes, yes, it's sort of, it has, you know, trees grow all over the world, but differently depending on their latitude and their altitude. So the northern temperate zone all the way around the world has got the richest and most diverse woods, I think. These ones over here. That, oh, this is elm. elm. When there was still elm. You know, this actually from a trip into, in, uh, in, in Australia, they have a lot of gum trees. Uh, the stumps have been left, quite tall stumps, and the forest, uh, the fires have, have, have got in and they've burnt the middles out. And often they've got a, a, a cavity or a space in the front, the fire gets, gets in there. And the outside of the gum trees, with the bark all off, have gone like a really light silvery grey. And so the black of the interiors are incredibly dense. And, and black absorbs you whereas white repels. So that was from that, really. It's a threshold column, so there's a, a series of rings which have all been cut with an opening, so that when they stack up, you've got a, like a threshold looking. It's all black, but it's even blacker inside. Extraordinary. And then these from... Yeah, they call these king and queen. No, I'm making these tall, charred shapes for a show in Germany, and... Um, 
when I, I stood them up and I put wood all around them to char them, to burn them, and when I took the wood off, because I have to stack the wood all the way up to the top, you leap planks leaning on it. When I took them off, those holes had appeared, which weren't there when I started the fire, when they were just cut. And they are not holes, which in the fire had dropped out. So they, they suddenly took on this figurative yeah. connotation, which I hadn't planned. But that's what happens in the actual process of working. And if you're working in a, in a collaborative way and looking for what it does to lead one on to a new idea. Beautiful. Well, could I ask you about the bark behind us? It's cork. Oh, cork, I'm sorry. I've gone out with Claire to uh, actually to draw the oak, standing oak trees, which had been freshly harvested, because the wood that's left goes a, a very strong red, which was very impressive. Mm. So I, I was, that's what we went there for. But this, we were staying on a cork farm, and he had 40 tonnes of cork that was drying in a big stack, and it was so exciting. As a, so I, I asked him if it's possible to buy, and he said, we can't buy this because it's already sold. It's just drying to get the weight down. So I said, what about next, next year's harvest? So I, I, I booked in to get 10 tonnes. It was a spur of the moment. I was just <laughs> so excited. When they're stacked up horizontally with all these curved shapes, it was just fantastic. And I never worked with bark before. So this was an opportunity. So we've made a version of this which is 25 feet tall. Wow. You know, really big, big spire. So, it's, um, so we have to take it apart each time and then we have to rebuild it. So it always goes up a little bit different, differently. So these are actually all screwed into each other. And it's in four parts, like a, slices of cake. Yes, yes. But, the, but it's cunningly done, so you can't really see where the um, joins are. It's amazing. I'm trying to think how, even how to describe it. It is like <laughs> a cake, as you say, but it's the best decorated cake you could ever imagine. <laughs> it's just ruffles of cork round in a, yeah. in a pile. <laughs> it's a cone shape, really, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the sort of art, uh, universal forms in a cone. This one is from... The wood is uh, grown in Hokkaido, and I made it out there in northern Japan. I had a, a museum show to tour around Japan, sponsored by a newspaper. And I proposed that I went four times in the four seasons, for though we would call the show the spirit of four, four seasons. But this was in 93, 94. So I went uh, spring and then summer. And then they told me, because when the f this was the first big financial crash in 93, 94, and they said, we can't afford two more seasons. You'd have to choose autumn or, or uh, winter. So I chose the winter. Cause in northern Hokkaido, it's the, the weather, the seasons are so extreme. It's amazing. Cause spring is late. And when I was first there in May, and you could just see the vegetation growing. It's amazing. Then in the um, summer, it was incredibly hot. And then uh, autumn, which would have been absolutely beautiful because of the autumn colour. It's a bit like Canada. But uh, the winter was what, what I had heard of. And it snows all the time. So there's 12 feet of snow. And you're working in uh, Yeah, and they dug out uh, like a quarry. So I had these 12-foot walls, white walls around me. And I had a big fire burning in the middle. And I had several assistants helping 
helping me. It was in a village which had a famous Ainu sculptor who uh, lived there, who had only just recently died. So the village was known for its wood sculpture. So they felt this was an appropriate place. But this, the first wood that I had was, wasn't very thick, the diameter, so I said at the end of the, of the summer stint, so if my exhibition is, is a zoo, we've got lots of small animals, snakes, but we, have, we need some elephants, so we, you know, we've got to get some big wood. And they found out of wood yard two big oak trunks, which nobody had bought because they had a lot of cracks in them. So they gave me that. So this is, this is a bowl, so it's like a, your palm of your hand raised, and then the bottom is like a table that, that it's standing on. It's, it's all one piece of wood. Yeah, it's actually upside down from the way that it grew because at the bottom of a tree it flares out. Of course. Uh, so the whiter wood around the edge, that is the sapwood. So that's the original diameter of the wood. So where possible I will use the extremities of the material which I start, which I start with. Is and I got that from the Ainu, the north, sculptures, yes, sculptures, where well, they found a stone, a naturally eroded stone, and they carve a story and a uh, narrative into it, but you can still feel the, the original stone. So that was where I'd got that idea, back in, in the 70s, when I heard that. I love the colours of this one, because it doesn't look like, I, not entirely how I recognise oak, and there's sort of a, there's a pinkiness to it. And yeah. A real gentleness to the colours. It's really beautiful. Yeah, this show toured uh, Japan in 95, 94, 95, and they, it was in Kobe when they had that huge earthquake. And they, it was a very new museum, so it was earthquake-proof, but it threw all my work around. And a big section of this fell off. So I've managed to pin it, pin it back on. The kind of, I know it's a palm, but it also feels like a, a leaf as well, doesn't yes, it? It's just, yeah. um, yes, And in a way, when you tip a bowl like that, it lo- it's got a sense of it looking mm-hmm. upwards. Yeah. And, the, and the table's very downward gesture, solid, stolid. So we've just come across the street, David, to another building, another of your places of work. Could you describe where we are now? It was a shop built by the people who lived next to well, whoever lived there, in 1910. And uh, I got it for £800. It was in a pretty bad state, and it had been made out of scrap. I found the receipts from 1910 of where he'd bought all, all, all the stuff to uh, build this but I got this in 1978 but it wasn't until 1992 that I could afford to actually do it up to be a, a specific drawing space because paper needs to be dry and it's a, this is a very wet climate here so my other drawing, drawing studios the paper was crinkling up whereas I might have welcomed that in my sculpture but not so much for the actual drawings. Um, so I, I needed a dedicated space, so we sort of rebuilt the whole place, but I kept it looking like it originally was. Um, so on the walls you've got various paintings. 
They're drawings, mostly drawings. pastel. Yep. Some are made with stencils. Like this one is a stencil drawing, and it's of the four seasons of the ash dome. So there's spring, summer, autumn, winter, all on one piece of paper. It's hard not to be struck by the colour as soon as you walk in, yes. having just been looking <laughs> at the, the sculptures and the natural wood form. Yeah. There's so much vibrant colour here. Yeah. Do you feel like a different person when you walk into it? Well, this? I was a painter to start with when I went to art school. That's how I imagined I was going to be. And I really got into colour and the uh, metaphysics of colour and the, the, the emotional qualities which they give off. But I really lost my way, really. And I also found that I was just more interested in making forms in space rather than flat works. I wanted to, what I was trying to make on the wall, I wanted to actually exist in three-dimensional space but I always had a facility for drawing making marks and so that's always continued it was much more about the sculpture initially but then I'd find something an idea in the sculpture like with redwood like with, with sequoia or yew which is red and if I charred it or part charred it I'd have red and black and that interested me that relationship of the vibrancy of red and that sort of expansive sense it has compared to the black which is a very solid and downward where the red has an upward gesture so there are a lot of red over blacks here like I I just wouldn't be able to put black over red (laughs) after doing sculpture for so long did that completely change your your drawing not really I've always done I've always made drawings and works on paper so and, and if an idea starts to work in one's head and it works on the will forces you just sort of see where it's going to go and it might start as three dimensions but, but the idea my I couldn't extend the red and black really in three dimensions but I could on paper uh, like you can't suspend a piece of red in space without any visible <laughs> form of uh, a way of holding it up 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 there yeah and then sometimes with uh, I, will, I will explore a 3d idea in drawing but not often i usually draw after i've made the sculpture because when i've made it i thought oh you'll be a good drawing yeah. so then I... um can we talk about how you ended up here in north wales because you're originally from surrey aren't you I was born in Surrey. My father was considered himself to be Welsh as he was born in Newtown. His parents were from Shropshire, well-to-do entrepreneur who made his initial fortunes in Newtown as a pharmacist, actually, and he made these curals, snake oils, I think, and then mail order was a, was a big thing, so he was making products for and he, he moved to London and, and uh, took his wife, my grandmother, and his five sons down to London and set up a department store in Regent Street, which failed. Uh, it got swindled and uh, bankrupt. But he, the parents, the grandparents had moved back up here because they'd really loved being in North Wales. And so we were coming to visit them. And they, they had bought this rambling old house because they'd always used to be living in big houses although they had no money they bought a like a big country house with which was nearly next to nothing and falling to bits but it was big enough for all the family all my cousins and we'd all be going there 
so and it was that was really where all my nature experience my growing up and exploring really happened for me which couldn't really happen in Surrey and then later I just didn't want to be in the home counties it was Tory land and everything was thoroughly owned and there was a, just a, a freedom in this area and um I, I knew Bliner because uh, my grandparents lived in San Fastinia, just down the valley. So we were coming here a lot and exploring in, in these old slate quarries and going down the slate mines and into these caverns. So, you know, being here, if you have no rent or mortgage, you have much more time. And that's what I really needed as to find out whether I could be an artist, really, as a professional artist. When you were young, and exploring here, what do you think it did to your creative brain to well, be in and out of those quarries? Because you're, you're moving, your physical body is moving on these long treks, and you're finding things and you're investigating them, which is what you would call playing. So that, that, that was what it was doing for me, and I experienced the seasons, which, you know, when we came at Christmas, it was cold and often there was snow. So that was a very distinct experience compared to Easter, which would be in the spring. And also you could see a long way. You could see the weather coming, which was very exciting. You see, we got 20 minutes before that, before that gets here, which in Surrey, you, you couldn't see really all that far. Yeah, as I said, I got my nature experience here. So when you moved here all those years ago, how conscious were you that you might be alienating yourself entirely from making a living through through art? Well, that was really the purpose, was to come here, to be not part of the London scene. I, I sort of had a look at it. And my mentor at Kingston Art School, Eddie, Eddie Pickett, he was trying to get shows. He was, you know, he, he was renting a basement of a church hall, making amazing work, trying to get a gallery to give him a show. And it was so painful. And it was, really, it was great work, so inspiring. So I thought, really, I think that when I was 14, I decided I wanted to be an artist because artists were free and I wanted to be a free human being. So I was devising something, well, how, and then how could that, how can I do that? And I realized it depends on where you are and you're just going to be able to support yourself. And I realized then from what Eddie was doing that you have to have a day job. You won't earn money from your work, especially when, when you're a young artist. So don't expect to. But you just got to give yourself time. So my idea of coming here was partly somewhere where I knew that I really liked being. And so I had odd jobs. I could do that here. So for two or three days' work, I would earn enough to give myself four or five days' work each week, seven, a seven-day week, to actually make art or make, make stuff. Still questioning whether I was making art or not or what art was. And so by basically, if you can, if you ride a rock bottom, so this is really rock bottom. If I'm all right here, if nothing happens, I'm all right here. So if anything happens, then great. It's also a very, um, it's just such an unusual landscape, partly because of that. The natural landscape is, is very dramatic, but then you've got the, the drama of what man has done to the landscape yes. alongside you know, it. I learned a lot from that. Why the slate dips look as they do is because... They weren't, self -con they weren't consciously designed to look like that. That's just from the process. And that's when I realised that that's how you make sculpture, is that you focus on the process. 
and let the result look after itself. So the, the eventual aesthetic is there really at the beginning with the materials which one is using and the processes which you're putting the, that material through, which loosened the sense of finish because mm-hmm. it was finished when there wasn't anything more to do. So stop fussing it. And you worked, am I right, in recalling for the forestry service for a while here? The economic forestry group. I planted trees and I dug ditches and I sprayed gorse with poison, which was ghastly. You got six shillings, 30p, for every hundred trees you planted. And then when I got the piece of land, this hillside, which had been a a carefully husbanded broadleaf wood of four and a half acres, had all been cut down by a woodman who had managed to get in there and he'd just taken all the trunks and left all the branches. So I volunteered to clean up and replant. But I had, it took four years over it, so I had all this fresh wood, big branches. That's when I really learnt the language of uh, wood and all the different species of beech and oak and birch and yes. elm. You can see in your work this real intimacy with, with the wood and the way you talk about them, the way you describe them, it's really lovely. You, I mean, even when you describe the sculptures over there as your congregation, and, and it does feel there's an affection and a warmth. Well, there, I've always seen everything as animated, which I thought was normal, but apparently I did. <laughs> but I, so I would refer to them as... And so when I'm conversing with my materials, they're not dumb. I had been treating it as dumb, when it was plywood or just demolition beams, it was just a length, which was a convenient thing for me. But when I actually uh, allowed their animation into my mind, I was trying to make art, you see. That was the problem. I was trying to make art. You know? so, that. so the uh, problem is that you look at the history of art and then what other people are making. It was this art. Is that art? So, you know, kind of coming here gave me the, the freedom because I wasn't being... I wasn't part of, of the art world here, nor was I trying to compete. What was the first piece that felt like you? Like the first oh, it piece was the nine crack ball. And that was just an exercise when I'd actually, when I really realised I wasn't addressing wood as wood. And I took the most simple wood cutting device, which is an axe, and I got a, a fresh piece of ash. They happened to be cutting some trees opposite me and I got one of the trunks, rolled it across the road and I just cut. And it's been cut down with an axe. So when you cut down a tree, you're cutting out a V-shape. So the end of this trunk was sort of rounded, conical round. So I just did the same immediately after that and it became like a rough ball. So what the exercise I'd given myself, that this is the process, cutting the wood with the axe, when that piece of wood comes off the main trunk, that's it. No filing, no sanding, no colouring. It's the result of, of the process. And I so liked it, I did another one, another one, another one, until they were nine. And that was, yeah. But I wasn't sure if it was art, though, until quite a lot later. Six months later, when I refound them, there it took, I took them inside, some plywood got lent on the wall, and they were underneath the, this ply. When I used the ply, they were there and they'd all cracked. And they thought, wow, look at these. And ash cracks, big cracks. So they were like grinning at me. So I said, and it was like, yes. So that was really, you know, all that I'd done before, which was trying to make art. I'd found actually how to make a thing 
in an honest way. Um, you've mentioned about how you use different tools and, and eventually alighted on the chainsaw. How different does that feel and how different is that relationship with the wood? Well, uh, ten, 10 years I was trying to be just Robinson Crusoe, basic tools, and then I, I was sawing up my firewood with a bow saw, and it takes a long time. So I did get myself a chainsaw to cut firewood, and I had a big pile of wood, and then I, within an hour I had a sculpture. So, and it was then I realised that the chainsaw is, that's a small chainsaw, it's like all wood tools made in, into one really like that like this like a chisel and also you can do things with wood you can't do with any other tools you can make these cuts which are about a quarter of an inch thick and then you can slightly bend it but you can and you can push the saw through so you one has an instrument it's it is a line really or an, a, and a pointed line that you can cut and and move <coughs> through the wood but for because i worked with wood for 10 years all different types of deciduous wood I knew them intimately but if you start with a chainsaw you tend not to get you wouldn't have that experience of how different the woods are because the chainsaw does tend to make each wood pretty much feel the same could you tell me about some of the countries you've visited and you've seen the trees for the first time or seen the wood for the first time and it's completely beyond our scale or knowledge or in Japan uh, it's a northern, northern temperate zone, so there are similar trees here. The oak is the oak. But it was a culture that was so different, really. Uh, and I had, the first time I'd actually had assistance, I had four Japanese woodmen. The, these were local forestry woodmen. This was a national park. And it was in the winter, and it was two feet of snow, and it was minus 25, and... Uh, because I'd asked for a tree of a certain dimension which had fallen. It had to be a fallen tree. When, I, when we arrived there, the first time I was in, I was in Japan, so I was pretty jet-lagged, and we had to walk across this snow valley, and they, they, the woodmen had made this little bridge across a stream. And the stream wasn't frozen because it was coming from a hot spring, so there was steam coming off. It was amazing. Uh, it was it's idyllic. It's like a Japanese watercolour or wood, woodcut. And there was this fallen tree, a lot of snow, and they'd cleared a bit. And I, I, had an, I bought some tools and they had an axe and I chopped into it. I realised, this is oak. So I was so excited. But there were 25 people there in, in coat, suits and uh, coats. And they, there was silence. And then I said, oh, this is wonderful. And then the translator translated what I said and they all started clapping. Because all these people had been involved in this project, you know, because they were national park people, they were museum people, they were forestry people, they were everyone in the whole hierarchy of being able for this to actually happen. Um, And it was like a honeymoon, really. I had three weeks there on this riverbank. Um, It was very cold in the start, you couldn't touch anything metal without a gloved hand because you just stick on, onto it but when the sun came up it was warm so and you start picking up the culture and also curiously the memory of in that lives in places so i found that in each different different place um what was unique in hokkaido is the birch trees there which birch grow all around the world in northern temperate zones and culturally they are regarded differently like here in britain it's like a weed and an inferior wood. 
But in Scandinavia, there is a reverence for it. And in Hokkaido, northern Hokkaido, it grows really slowly. So it's very heavy. It's as heavy as oak, and, and it's very dense, which is very unlike other birch that I come across. And it grows quite big. And it was like working with silk. It was absolutely exquisite. Are you surprised when people don't know what a tree is? What they, they don't recognise what species no, a tree is? I'm not really surprised because people don't live outside very much now or go outside as, even as children. I've learned so much about it. The tree will take you into a deep philosophy. Yeah, is this a, you know, they are millions of years old, these different species, and they've developed strategies which are successful. Uh, their way of propagating and what habitats they work best in and how they just about survive in, in others. Because a tree isn't really made of wood. It's only wood when it's dead. Really. It's a living being and an incredible living plumbing system. And, and it trades. It's, it's an economic phenomena in that trees can't grow without mycorrhizal fung- fungi because a tree can't actually break down minerals into a form that it can use. Only the fungi can. So the fungi does that attached to the root, feeds the tree, the tree makes the sugars, and the excess sugar goes to the fungi. You've got two very striking cherry blossoms outside as well, yeah. haven't you? Do you plant those? Yes. So when, I, so when I renovated this in 92, 93, I planted those there. It's done my street cred a great deal of good okay. because when I was first here, I, we had no money at all for decades. <laughs> so we were really scruffy and I always had loads of wood out for the chapel and that was a bit of, of a disgrace. But when I did this up properly, because it, it was derelict, I, yeah, I got... Better street cred then. Well, I was going to ask actually what the neighbours made of you when you turned up and started carving. Well, I was very young and I was English, so didn't think much. I mean, I did happen to hear some of the stories around about because I was quite self-conscious about what people thought of it. But they were so way off what the truth was. I thought, well, it doesn't really matter, does it really? Because they're going to make <laughs> anything up. But I say they, but and not us. And in a way, I think if you're English, you, can't, you are always going to be in an ethnic minority. But the Welsh nature is very kind and it's very supportive and they're very socially minded. The social structures are much better here in Wales than they are in Britain. And just from how people naturally are and how they look after each other. Um, this is obviously to do with Yorkshire Sculpture Park. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about your relationship with them? Yeah, I was quite a journeyman. I didn't have a gallery in the 70s and early 80s. I'd done the Grisdale residency, one of the first ones. Um, Peter Murray and some Yorkshire sculptors had got together with the idea of a Yorkshire sculpture park and they were basing it at Bretton Hall, which is a teacher training college. Peter Murray was the principal lecturer and he, he really got the sculpture bug and, uh, and a local artist, had, sculptor, had asked if he could show work there, and they did, and Peter really fell in love with the whole idea. And uh, so over 45 years, I think it is, he's grown from this will force, his will force, and his canniness and his cheekiness uh, into a very f- substantial, solid, sound institution. 
it's just amazing. But I was one that uh, I was, met him in '79. They were going to do a wood show, though I'd been invited. I was coming back from Grisdale back here, so I diverted and went via there. I had all my tools. When I drove in, there was a big beech tree, a huge branch had fallen off the crown. So I thought, oh, I could make something up in that crown out of that. So I suggested to him, he was a bit sort of cagey about it. But anyway, I thought, well, I'll just do it. And I don't know if it'll work or not. But anyway, we made it. And his curator, because Gordon Young, he said to him, oh, the principal's not going to like this. It's in the wrong place. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was the start of our relationship. And then um, he had initiated the, a, a fellowship year for us, for a young sculptor, to be there a year with a bit of funding and accommodation. So I got that in 81, 82. Spend, went over a whole year. And that was just before I was going off to Japan with this idea, I'd said, well, I'm in bravado, I said, well, I'll come out and make all the work there. And they said, oh, yeah, that's a really nice idea. So I had to find out whether I could do this and how long it would take. So they had a lot of elms there at Breton Hall, which were dying, and I had one of those as a, a dry run. And it was 20 days it took me to make a whole show out of this whole, whole, whole tree. And then Peter and I kept in touch, and... I helped curate a show, and then he, he was always finding possibilities. Something was always brewing, and then he'd been asking me to do a whole show, and I knew they were going to be building these, what they call the un- underground galleries, and I wanted to wait until they were established, and they were, and so 2010 was when I did my larger show. And the sponsor for that show, one of his requests was that there should be something stayed there so that's where I made the 71 steps and then the, the work sold from there and the park were going to get a percentage and I kept trying to get them to give me an invoice for what I owed them anyway, never, so I said look there's this certain amount of money I could make a growing piece and another outdoor sculpture at cost and then we'll call it quits so that's how the 49 birch Peace and the black mound came about. So it's white coming, black going, adjacent to each other. Could you tell us a little bit about Ashdown? Because yeah, I think a lot of people um, might might know that one already. But well, I had the, got the use of this piece of land. And eventually, came to own it, and I was clearing up, and I started planting. And I'm not wanting them to plant straight lines. So if you plant one tree and a second tree, the third tree, you make a triangle. And then in a way, you make a space. And then I started imagining them growing bigger, how far apart to plant them. And that's when I realized I could grow a space. Because land art then was mostly conceptual. And you'd go out and you'd do something, you'd get your fingers into the ground and you'd do something and then you'd document it, and then you'd move on, and you'd leave it behind, which is what I loved. But then I was thinking about, what about if you stayed around? Also, how do you have a wood sculpture outside which doesn't rot? And also, how do you have a sculpture outside which can actually change? How do you have an outside sculpture which is really of the place where it originates? Because most outdoor sculpture which is made somewhere and brought in looks like a UFO. So the idea of growing trees into a form and then a, a dome was, a, was really a, 
a choice because it was echoing the forms which are around us here, the domed mountains of the Manods and then the foothills. There's also the environmental movement then was really coming much stronger and had a voice and it was really speaking to me that this was the most pertinent political issue that in my lifetime, in my generation, we had to deal with. So this is back in, in the early 70s. So really how we behaved in the world. If you take more than you need, then you, there's something wrong. And you're taking more than someone else. Is. So and that's what I learned from the tree, that they just take only enough and they give back more much more. So one's behaviour is really, you can make a philosophical statement about how one should behave, but if you don't do it, so that's what I was trying to find. I wanted a work, way of working which demonstrated an attitude and behaviour which was healthy for the planet. And from the um, Tao Buddhism, is collaborate with nature, understand it, and work with it. So you nurture, you can nurture each, each other has got fungus now, right? Is that the time? Oh, it's got dieback. Okay. Yeah. Well, the other aspect of the ash dome is because in the 70s, we had the Cold War was dangerous. There was a fuel crisis. There was inflation, incredible inflation. Then and people were saying, well, a human being is not going to see the 21st century. We're going to blow ourselves to pieces and exhaust all our resources. So I thought planting a form which would take 30 years to grow is growing something for the 21st century. So it was a sort of rather naive gesture towards the 21st century. It also gave the concept a sense of longevity. Mm -hmm. that I was in this, I'd planted this and I was going to stay here and I'm going to do this, if I can, if it's possible. And then going back to the original concept, it had to exist in its natural environment and its natural whatever happened to it. So Ash, ash died back. Yeah. I, I have to accept it. But we have planted, there are 22 trees in the Ash Dome and I've planted 22 oaks around it, okay. just a metre and a half out, with the idea of growing an oak dome, which is a much more difficult thing to do. So we planted them with two gen- three generations, my generation, my son, my main assistant, Sam, who was born on the same day as my younger son, and they've both got two children. So we were all there planting them. So we've got three generations, hopefully, to yeah. nurture this into. And it's changed the whole mood for me around the ash dome, is it? Okay, now that was the idea. We can't do it with ash. Well, let's try with oak. That's really lovely. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower and more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.